This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible Berry Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In his book, Black Masculinity and Hip Hop Music Black Gay Men Who Rap, published by Pelgrave Macmillan in 2019. Xin Ling Li offers an interdisciplinary study of hip-hop music written and performed by rappers who are black gay men. Xin Ling Li received his PhD in sociology from the University of Cambridge, United Kingdom. I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome. Thank you. So to get started, um, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I was um, born and raised in China, but then I left, uh, I left China when I was, I think, in my late teens, and I moved to South Africa. I was there about eight or nine years. Um, I finished my undergraduate there, my master's there, you know, um, and um, then I moved to the UK for my PhD. Um, and that's the time I decided to, to embark on this this um, journey and you know um, finish this project. But before um, I went to obviously when I when I was applying for my PhD and um, thinking about you know uh, doing something about uh, music and sexuality because my master thesis then was uh, focused on sexuality and also I was a trained classic musician. Um, so I started exploring you know the, the topics, looking at existent literature um, and especially genres and obviously the classical music is the most sort of researched and then the next was uh, rock and roll you know pop uh, pop music a lot of things gender sexuality they've explored all these themes and um, and issues related to these themes in those music genres and in terms of history and also um, you know just the, the social impact in general um, the only sort of like one genre that's left sort of unresearched and also um, um, like almost untouched is hip hop. Obviously, there were a lot of um, feminist critique of the genre, um, especially with regards to its misogyny and also uh, you know its urban origin. You know, so, so certainly people wrote about the history and origin of hip hop and how it's it's like a it's a, a industrial uh, product. You know, you don't compose uh, hip hop music per se. You assemble the sounds of the urban, the urban city. You know, that's how it started with the sampler, and uh, how people sort of argued in the streets. You know, black and called it dozens, the kind of rebel practice to resolve uh, conflicts, and then sort of merge that with with music, with beats initially, and then they put on. You know, if you look at uh, how hip hop started as a, as a sort of like a, a almost like a competition, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the Bronx where they would, you know, hire, uh, like 
MCs, they would they would put put all these sort of gang groups in together and ask them to to have a rap battle. That's how the jungle started. So that was always very interesting, but still, you know, the 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 sexuality part was lacking. But rap, there was actually a lot of um, contenting rap music, uh, either implicitly or explicitly talking about um, sexuality, and also especially homosexuality. You know, I was wondering were there any any gay rappers? You know, because if you look at rock and roll, if you look at R and B, there has been. You know, slowly, but there has been sort of slowly the coming out of these musicians, and also the famous ones like Elton John, like um, and George Michael. You know, um, so and also how um, sort of popular artists like Madonna, Beyonce, they sort of adopted um, elements of queer culture to to you know, I mean, in a way, profit from these culture, but also sort of expose. Um, queer culture to the mass audience, but hip hop is this sort of this this one genre. Anyway, so that's where I started, and I wasn't familiar with hip hop music before, but this this was uh, like a life changing journey for me. Um, yeah, right. And so um, your your book really focuses on the attitudes and expressions and relationship between hip hop and homosexuality. And so just to give listeners a little bit of a, a framework here, historically, what was the attitude of hip-hop music to gay people? Did they figure in the music? And if so, how were they represented? Well, there wasn't any representation, uh, I, I would say, like uh, like sort of open to the public until um, perhaps Little Nas X, which, who's fairly recent, um, like very recent, if not sex. Um, before, you know, there were rumors about certain rappers being gay, but it was never confirmed, and also it wasn't particularly invo- uh, like important to the to the hip hop scene. And um, but hip hop wasn't, you know, there were different arguments uh, about whether hip hop as a genre, as a culture, was was inherently inherently uh, homophobic. You know? I wouldn't say it's inherently homophobic, even uh, particularly given the fact that it was influenced, partly influenced by the disco culture as well. The disco culture was very sort of uh, inclusive and um, gay people back in the 80s and 70s enjoyed disco culture. But the content of gay uh, rap, like rap music itself, is very masculine, if not hyper-masculine. And oftentimes people don't associate masculinity with homosexuality. You know the stereotype goes. You know if you if you're gay, if you, especially male gay person, then you are likely feminine. You know, gesticulating, um, sort of camp, sissy, and you, you you know and and how even in rap lyrics they sort of implicitly or explicitly downgrade a uh, uh, gay man to sort of like a woman. That kind of um, attitudes, um, but but the words itself, for instance, like uh, use. You know the F word like fag a lot in um, early hip hop um, songs, but that's more like a use the words as an insult to address someone who they think is stupid or unmanly or sort of um, lack masculinity. It's not necessarily an insult to people who are gay entirely. It's almost like a banter. You know, they use that. Because I use an example in my book is that Eminem, before he became famous, um, when he was rapping in these underground uh, uh, clubs in Detroit, he used, uh, you know, the N-word and the F-word continuously and uh, a lot. But when he became famous, um, he stopped using the N-word because, you know, he's white. But he's continued to use the F-word, you know, in few of his songs. Um, but that's like almost like a habit. You know, he defended himself. He's saying that you know, uh, it's just a habit. I'm not trying to insult anyone. The the most I would say is to to refer to someone who is not masculine, a man who is not masculine. Yeah, yeah. So you you talk about in the book the distinction between uh, using uh, um, uh, a kind of um, 
a derogatory term uh, um, against homosexuals, uh, using it uh, to critique or to criticize someone's gender performance, like how they present themselves, how, as you say, kind of masculine or sissy, if they're, they seem very strong or very effeminate, rather than critiquing their sexual orientation. In other words, who they're actually sexually attracted to or who they have sex with. And you make that, you, you, you point that out as a, as a really important distinction. Yeah, because a lot of times, and I think people conflate um, gender with with sexuality, um, <clears throat> and that's I think also media sort of contribute to that conflation. Because if you look at you know the successful um, gay male representation, gay male representations in the media, like RuPaul's Drag Race, which I also mentioned in the book, um, so the overwhelming understanding for the public, you know, for the general audience, especially for straight people, is that gay men are feminine. But historically, if you look at, um, you know, the ancient Greece, uh, China and Japan, you know, medieval Japan, medieval China, homosexuality had very little to do with gender. You know, it's not people don't recognize gay people through gender. But uh, but somehow now we do. You know, I'm working, actually working on my second book and which answers that question. Why now we do? You know, um, All right. But, but to answer your question, yeah, that's that's the. Uh, I think people need to make that distinction because um, because a lot of uh, the, the the rappers I interview they talk about how they cannot find anyone they can relate to in in the in the you know in the mass media, and um, there's a lack of representation. Um, and if you even look at movies, look at series now, even though even though you know queer culture is very much accepted by mainstream media by Hollywood, but the representation the people. Um, who, who you know embody these these representations? They don't. They actually have, like I would say, they represent a small minority of, of gay men in general. The, the the in other words, you're saying that even in the mass media, we're today, there, one may find many representations of gay of gay men. Those gay men tend to be represented as effeminate men, and who are who are um as you say they gesticulate a lot their 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 voice is is uh, uh maybe high pitched right that those are quote unquote the gay men who are represented and one might even say embraced by modern audiences of mass media but you're saying that another kind of gay man a, a more masculine gay man that you you don't see a lot of uh, popular representation even today in general in the media. Yeah, because you don't you don't see like we still um, couldn't see like an out you know NBA player an out NFL player because you know they, these people they came out after they they um, they got retired and they will talk about how there were you know a significant amount of uh, uh, gay players in these leagues in these you know top top notch world top notch uh, sports leagues. But we don't hear stories about. You know, I think the the one guy came out, but he was then dropped. He was dropped by one of the NFL teams, Michael Sam. You know, it's basically give you a signal that you can't really come out in a so-called uh, you know a, a straight man's profession. That that disturbance. A macho, that, a macho yeah. straight yeah. man's profession. Exactly, <laughs> like a macho. Exactly. You, know, you can't really because that's that's the ultimate disruption and ultimate disturbance to both the sport itself. Well, as they say, but even though it doesn't really do anything to the sport, you know, if you're good at the sport, do it, regardless of your sexual orientation. I mean, you can even be, uh, uh, you know, because people think, oh, if you're feminine, you can't play basketball. That's not true. You can be feminine and still play very good basketball. You know, that's the, the sport itself has nothing to do with how you present yourself, really. You know. <laughs> Uh, it, it seems to disrupt the symbolically the symbolic representation of who would be a good basketball player or a good football player or a good martial artist or something. Someone who's a, a, a sport that's uh, perceived, again, as being very macho, very um, uh, tough guy kind of thing, uh, uh, to, to have someone who's openly gay and still playing that sport, it would it would challenge this basic stereotype or or, or, or symbol of the men who play those yeah, sports. Because because now people would would be asking a question like, so what is what is a straight man? 
<laughs> yeah. That's the thing is that you can have your your comfortable sort of gay professions, but the rest of them, you know, you have to leave them to real men, especially especially hardcore macho sports. Uh, right, right. But, the listeners the listeners can't see, but uh, you're you're making air quotes when you say real men and 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 things like that. You're saying that this is the way that that that. That, that these men are commonly represented in the mainstream culture. Yeah. So one of the, I think one of the uh, 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 issues that all these rappers are interviewed for the book, they really address that because they are very, they are very masculine. You know, they're very, they even tell me stories about how um, when they... These are, sorry, these are gay, openly gay men who rap. And we're going to get to them and their contribution in a little while. But but sure, continue. Yeah, so I'm just saying that they, they really... Because initially, I think uh, uh, Deep, Deep, uh, Deep Deep Collective, when they first came out in um, Oakland, so, uh, in Oakland, California, that, that's one of the uh, sort of mission is to bring out all these ma- sort of masculine gay men. You know, because they love hip hop music, they understand hip hop music. That's their, that's their thing. You know, they it's, 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 it's the culture they grew up with. And but funny enough, uh, they firstly attracted women, women audience, because because that they oh these men are so intelligent, they're so you know eloquent, and also they're so masculine. Is this is what we want? You know? <laughs> <laughs> this is like a dream come true for straight women. <laughs> it was. It was you know, it's irony. So they get comments like, "Oh, such a waste." You know, even though it doesn't sound good to them, but but it's it's almost like a compliment. You know, I wish there were more men like you, but straight. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So it's funny because in a lot of you know, um, uh, uh, um, uh, romantic comedies or whatever, you know, you have this idea of um, straight women who are in many ways attracted to gay men because, um, again, this is on a sort of stereotypical level that the, the gay men love fashion and 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 um, fine dining and, and whatever. And then the straight women are like, yes, this is just the kind of men I'd love to, to, to go to a museum with, go to a concert with. But, oh, oops, you know, they're they're gay, you know, and they're not sexually attracted to me. But you're saying that, that these... Um, gay, uh, um, gay rappers are in a sense even more perfect, quote unquote, for straight women because they're so masculine. They're very, you know, strong, tough, you know, guys. Yeah, they're well educated, um, but also they come from black culture. You know, they, they don't come from like a, a, a rich class background. They're smart. They they well versed in you know feminist theories, <laughs> so they you know they, they have both sides. And the women's like, oh, you know what? They're so sophisticated. They understand women. They understand our struggles, and they're also masculine. You know, they they, they just they behave like every other every other straight straight man. It's <laughs> it's like a dream come true. <laughs> like I actually to to be honest, there was a story because when I when I was doing my. Uh, Research, I think, two years ago in, in Phoenix, uh, I met a friend and he was uh, telling me stories because he's like six, seven, very tall, very handsome, like, you know, guy. And he said he was with one of his ex boyfriends in, uh, in Atlanta in one of the very popular gay bars and there were like those long queue because it was a busy night. So they're waiting outside. And he said this. I was like, you, 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 you're kidding me. But he said, two women, they were driving in, in a car and they stopped. Because they saw these two guys, they're very handsome, very tall. You know, <laughs> it jumped out because they, because they're obviously the locals. They know the bar. They know it's a public gay bar. And they jumped up the car. They, they stopped and jumped up the car and said, "Oh, you can't, it can't be you. Anyone, anyone in the in the in this queue could be gay, but not not you two. <laughs> it's, it's it's to that extent, you know. I mean, this is like I know it's it's like a anecdote, but <laughs> sure, they they two, they two. Uh, uh, um, um, uh, macho or, or um, masculine to to actually be gay, according to to these women who who no, uh, like saw they, them. They, they at least we jump off the car and say, "No, it can't be you." <laughs> <laughs> okay, wow, that really is saying something. Um, no, yeah. <laughs> uh, right, right. Let let me ask you something. Um, again, just to kind of set the stage for for listeners, um, historically. What has been the relationship between black representations and homosexuality in America? 
Well, it's always being suppressed. Um, you know, they, they actually black people explore sexuality very openly. If you look at the Harlem Renaissance, you know, the writers um, like County Cullen, uh, uh, even um, Richard Bruce Nugent, and um, uh, Claude Maki. You know, these these pioneers of Harlem Renaissance. The, you know, the pioneers of of modern black literature. Uh, they were all gay. You know, they, they were exploring sexuality. They, they had, um, you know, sort of house parties where people can just embrace anyone they want in Harlem. You know, if you look at the history itself. This um, is in the 1930s. Yeah, 30s and 40s, yeah. There was this time of W.E.B. Du Bois and his daughter married County Cullen and did discover that the poet was gay. <laughs> and had to divorce him, you know. And, and W.E.B. Du Bois uh, hated, well, not, okay, that's a strong word, but he, he, he sort of, I would say, slightly castized um, Claude for his novel because it was full of sex. Because yeah. he didn't like it. It's like, why do you, write, why do you only write about sex? <laughs> no. there, there, there was, uh, you know, sexual fluidity, experiment, experiment with, you know, uh, uh, sex itself. You know, they, they had a lot of that, but it's, it's always sort of undercover. And, you know, once you leave that space, you're not supposed to talk about it. You know, so it's not necessarily like they, they never had a relationship, but they always had a relationship. It's just that it's it's even suppressed within their own community. They don't really talk about it. They know it, more or less, but they don't talk, they don't talk about it. Um, you know, until sort of like James Baldwin, who really exposed that, you know, through his novels. Another country, Giovanni's Room, and also um, Just Above My Head, his last novel, he really explored uh, what was going on, you know, in Holland back then. And, uh, you know, even incest, the sex within church choir, you know, these people, and how it was always sexualized, that space. Um, and also the pain, you know, the church sort of, in black, especially black church, sort of inflicted as much as, as, much as liberation they, they provided for, for black people, you know, how you, you can uh, uh, um, sort of seek uh, peace and comfort within that space, you know, uh, versus how you sort of go outside, you know, go into the society where you receive racism and oppression, blah, blah, and, you know, and be like the walking suspect. You know, people always suspect if you're a black man, you, you're just a culprit of something. There's always something to blame um, a, a black man for. So the space was, so, you know, supposedly safe and also like a, a, also like a, like a retreat. But at the same time, it, it, because the, the religious part, it really sort of, inflicted pain and uh, self like self suppression when it comes to sexuality onto um, you know a lot of black people. So he really explored that. Um, yeah, so the historical relationship is, is very complicated but also uh, not widely talked about. Right. And so you, you talk in the book about how uh, as you say that the that the Christianity uh, on the one hand, was very supportive of the formation of black identity uh, by giving uh, um, a black people a, a religious home and a strong um, kind of uh, affirmation community and an affirmation of their their personhood, you know, in, in a deeply racist uh, society. And at the same time, it was also in some ways limiting of their identity, especially in terms of homosexuality yeah yeah totally because i think they they uh when you know when black people started fully practice uh, christianity on their own not sort of guided by you know a white preacher a white pastor is that somehow they i don't i don't i'm not quite sure if that's the case but i you know based on my research is that uh, somehow and also my conversation with um uh you know some black ex-pastors <laughs> And who eventually came out and left the church, is that um, it's very orthodox the way they they wanted to practice Christianity. I think you should know that you probably know that much better than I do. You know, it's like the, it's very orthodox. They 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 really thought maybe that's that's where um, you know the salvation is for all of their pains, for for, for all of their suffering. Um, you know. But 
but then you have to abide by these rules in order to achieve that salvation. Sort of, yeah. And one of the rules was a, a strong opposition to any kind of uh, uh, a homosexual expression or activity. Yeah, like a lot of that, you know, uh, not just promiscuity, even though the church is, you know, people who go to church pretty promiscuous by historical record and all the data. Because um, a friend of mine, he did a, 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 well, he's a psychologist, but he did research on, you know, Southern Baptist churches and how the churches is very sexualized and, you know, people would go there looking for sex, to have sex wow. with yeah. <laughs> okay. it, it's, and he asked her how these pastors, he interviewed all these pastors about how, you know, the pastors say that there will be like women uh, come in and basically want to have sex with them. Wow, this seems very unlikely. This Southern uh, uh, um, um, Baptists are very sort of uh, a socially conservative uh, um, community, a very strict kind yeah. of socially conservative behind closed doors <laughs> it might be yeah that's something like it, it was so it was so shocking <laughs> yeah very very shocking indeed um so so as, as you described in your book on the one hand there's a lot of repression of homosexuality uh within the within the the black community because of the influence of the black churches and at the same time there's the influence of black nationalism um on homosexuality. Um, how is homosexuality viewed by black nationalists? Well, uh, that's like a, that's actually a weird uh, causation. I, you know, I was, I, when I was doing this, this project, I, I looked everywhere. Because um, part of the inspiration, I mean, within this country, in, within USA, the nationalist, uh, black nationalist rule sort of uh, began with David Walker, who was a rebel, was a rebel. But you know, he killed white people, and then you know, he was infuriated because the way he was treated, and um, he eventually just killed people, and they killed him, and it was oh, it was over. I mentioned that in the book, uh, but that set out a trend: is that you know, should black people actually stay with white people? Should they just be on their own? Be you know, be um, so that's the first sort of. I wouldn't say uh, revelation, but like sort of like a experimenting thoughts. But there's there's also Fanon, because in Fanon's book... Franz Fanon. Yes, Franz Fanon. In his book, um, uh, Black Mask, you know, Black black Mask, Black Skin, White Mask, uh, he theorized, you know, he was a trained uh, psychoanalyst, and he theorized that at least partially the kind of racism emerged out of uh, white people's suppressed desires. And he, he basically called, you know, in his book that uh, the, 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 the white man is a, is a, is a um, sort of self-suppressed homosexual. So the, and the, I, I also mentioned in the book precisely how he thought that that repressed desire was projected onto black people and um, through cruelty, through violence. Um, and also the black um, sort of art movement with Amiri Barke, for instance, he would say that, you know, the white society, white culture itself, they train every man to be a faggot. And Amir Baraka is a black man in 1960s, 70s, uh, in 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 Newark or um, uh, 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 in, in in okay, and he's a a, a strong black nationalist uh, figure, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, within that that camp, they had you know disagreements, different uh, ideas, but the separatist ideas all has always been there. You know, through through him, and even Stokely Carmichael, or some people call him Kwame Ture because he changed the name, and then he moved to Ghana. A founder of, uh, 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 also a, black, straw, uh, a famous... The, the, uh, the Black Power Movement. Yes. In yes, the 1970s, so, 60s, yeah, 70s yeah. in America. Lot, yeah, a lot of... Um, you know, he Because he, uh, I think he he was supposed to go to Harvard. The Harvard gave him a scholarship. He was a very um, sort of eloquent speaker. And he, he you know, became politically conscious when he, when he was like a teenager or something. 
but he rejected that offer and he went to Harvard uh, with a scholarship with a scholarship given by the Catholic Church. Surprisingly, <laughs> so um, let's not go there. <laughs> but but you can you can see how religion has infiltrated you know the black population everywhere in the world if you if you really have to dig deep. But uh, going back to the separatist or the black nationalist, including the Nation of Islam, the Nation of Islam was sort of the result of of the failed nationalist black nationalist movement. So they had this sort of like a a, a, a self sufficient, almost like a autarky within the society of uh, like a group of people living autarky, self sufficient community, almost be like the Mormons if you really have to, you know, almost like because. They don't marry out. They they stay in their group. You know, they they you know they have their own businesses. They have their own sort of production lines for food, for clothes, and stuff like that. So this is you know, um, but that's sort of cultural separatism. Eventually, that's like a compromise. But with homosexuality, because they they view the homosexuality as something that white people will use to infiltrate uh, black community and eventually will corrupt black men, will make them soft and weak. So it's almost like a virus. But the idea, I thought, perhaps maybe came from Fanon. But Fanon didn't say that. But he just said that, you know, how the white man was a self-repressed uh, homosexual and who projected his repressed uh, energy onto the black man or black people in general through violence and cruelty and by enslaving them. All right. So as you mentioned, for, for, for many, if not all, of the black nationalists, they viewed homosexuality as essentially a kind of white plot, you know, to 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 subvert and ultimately destroy the powerful black uh, uh, men. Um, and um, how did James Baldwin, the the great uh, a nov- black uh, um, um, a, a gay? novelist respond to these attacks on homosexuality from you know uh, 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 thinkers within the black community itself um, that's also quite divided because uh, for him he, he's always I mean based on my understanding of his novel and also his you know I've watched almost all, all his interviews um, you could find on YouTube and and also audio interviews audio recordings um, he, I, I, I feel like you know he thought uh, he thought of sexuality as where the solution to to all this sort of interracial conflicts, um, race and where whatever you know oppressions people experience in this country. He probably thought that sexuality could offer like a, a pathway to. To the solution, I wouldn't say solution, but or abs- I wouldn't say absolution either. But he thought sexuality is somewhere uh, people can resolve their issues through which they can re- re- resolve their issues, um, not at a societal level, but perhaps at a personal level. You know, that's part of the the theme of of um, another country when he wrote that, and um, and he exposed, you know, yeah, another country, yeah, not when he wrote it. You know how. We, and we only can we uh, only uh, you know the study if only can we um, resolve our issue at a personal level can we slowly and but steadily resolve issues at a societal level. But but he thought you know sexuality was because because sexuality is inevitable and especially interracial uh, desire you know how um, him and Alfred Cleaver had a long-standing arg- like a series of long-standing arguments because Cleaver uh, personally liked white women, but he wanted to deter that desire. He literally said in, you know, in his in his writing, he said, how can I deter my desire? How can I sort of um, postpone it, if not forever? Whereas Baldwin says, like, but there's nothing wrong with this. You know, you just have to... I mean, the, the funny thing that when, when Cleaver was on trial and his, his lawyer was a white woman and who was his ex-lover... <laughs> <laughs> it's very odd. Like, um, it's a very, it's a very odd. I know. But, and Eldridge Cleaver was was one of the founders of the Black the, Panther the, Party. The Black yeah. Party. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> so so it, it was, you know, this irony there. But um, but Baldwin says, you know, perhaps we should em- embrace each other's flaws and each other's um, um, 
you know, so-called sinful desires and explore on that. Perhaps we'll find something. And that's why he, he uh, you know, figuratively explored them in his novels and perhaps through his own experience um, in living in the States and also in particularly in Paris, uh, where, you know, homosexual was decriminalized uh, right after the, the enlightenment, sorry, the, the French Revolution. Yeah, France, wow. uh, yeah, France decriminalized it, I think, officially in 1791. Wow, that's, that, that's quite early for, for many, um, you know, many, many uh, modern governments. Um, um, uh, so you mentioned before the Nation of Islam, and I'm wondering what role did the Nation of Islam, and especially Louis Farrakhan, the kind of fiery and controversial uh, um, leader uh, of the nation of Islam, what role did they play in uh, um, in the development of hip hop? Well, uh, because Louis Farrakhan he saw the anger of you know uh, the mass urban um, black youth in terms of um, police brutality, in terms of you know sort of <clears throat> just general societal treatment of them because they were. Look, you know, front up and look down up on, and they're going to uh, poor neighborhoods. They don't have the same opportunities and education as other, you know, other their white counterparts. So there was this intense frustration, and uh, with with the frustration, it came hip hop music because it became the medium through which they can express themselves. It's 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 a calling for help, you know, even though they are vending, but it's still it's. Mm-hmm. Probably more, more than anything else, it's a calling for help. And he really, really harnessed that energy for his own for his own political gain, obviously. But he really harnessed that energy. And um, he somehow masterly sort of reconfigured God into some sort of vindictive uh, 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 supernatural being. And, you know, and sort of intensify it and worsen their anger. And hip hop become, and that's why a lot of rappers uh, back in the 80s, the so-called conscious rappers, a lot of them, they were members of the nation of Islam. Whether or not they were accepted, but they perceived themselves as members of Islam. They perceived you know, Louis, Louis Farquhar as their teacher, who is very uh, uh, flamboyant, by the way. <laughs> 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 you know, if, you ever, if you ever see him uh, uh, speak, you know, giving a public speech or an interview. And he was a, uh, well, once upon a time, he was a virtuoso violinist. <laughs> <laughs> Life is very complicated. Um, I, I'm wondering if you could give some examples of, of well known uh, rappers from the 1980s and on um, who s- saw themselves as uh, members of the Nation of Islam. And also, if you could give examples of how the Nation of Islam is represented in hip-hop lyrics itself. Oh, they were, you know, they were referenced uh, sort of either explicitly or implicitly in, in rap lyrics. Uh, a lot of these um, groups like the Tribe Called Quest, um, even some people from Wu-Tang Clan, these, uh, and also um, the, uh, what is it? Um, suddenly I can't think of the name. Um, the, the, the group that um, Ice Cube was formerly involved with Dr. Dre. Um, gosh, I suddenly, I suddenly forgot the name. Uh, they actually had a very successful movie uh, out of Compton. That's straight out of Compton. Yeah, straight out of, yeah, yeah, that's, that's uh, that, that, that group. Um, what's his name? I suddenly... Oh, NWA, sorry. NWA. Yeah. So uh, they they all, you know, they they if they could, they would uh, attend uh, speeches or, or um, sermons by Louis Farquhar. And also, there's another um, sort of similar organization. It's not as famous, not as big as as uh, Nation of Islam. So they also have alliances with these. Um, yeah, but I don't know if. The alliances, or if they uh, uh, what do you call it? not national alliances, but the involvement in this religious organization ever lasted. That I don't know. But in the eighties, they were very active, and when when they were interviewed, you know, uh, on TV, on television, or, or um, 
when they were talk, talking about their lyrics, they often would say uh, how they were inspired by Louis Farquhar's teaching and his um, and his ideas. And yeah. do the teachings or ideas ever show up explicitly in the lyrics of the rappers that you just mentioned? Not explicitly, because it, it, you know it, it, you have to think about the lyrics artistically. How you could you could um, say it? Because it's more about um, the composition itself. Like you know, does the word go with the, with the beat? Does it rhyme? You know, because it's. Um, but the influence is definitely there, and how Louis Farrakhan he always scapegoated uh, almost everything. If there's some political uh, uh, crisis happening in America, he would say, "Oh, because of gays, because of homosexuality, you know, uh, because of it's it's the yo-yo scapegoating." You know, people do that all the like leaders all over the world do that, um, especially in Africa. You know, that's almost almost also a technique of political distraction. So you you sort of uh, draw your your listeners' attention from the real issues to focus on something like homosexuality, and uh, yeah. And, and does that show up in the lyrics? This attack against homosexuality in the lyrics of the rap music? Well, they, they wouldn't say it's directly a message from you know the nation of Islam, obviously, but you could say you know like i said the teachings the, the the reflection of teachings were definitely in the lyrics they uh, and the text as well but you know whether the lyrics uh, present a direct causal link between the teaching and the uh, and and the uh, 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 sort of homophobic attacks in the lyrics that is not necessarily i mean that's not always conspicuous but given the interviews and how they sitting inspired by louis farquhar you know they agree with his ideas and sure there's definitely uh, a relationship there. <clears throat> All right. And um, you mentioned in the book that there was um, the, a black nationalist effort to claim that home, uh, that uh, Africa was a homosexual-free place before white people, before the colonists came to Africa. Um, and, that, and that, in fact... Um, there's this idea that 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 homosexuality was imported to Africa by white colonists, um, and that that uh, these um, black nationalists argue that in fact there's no word in any African language to describe same-sex behavior. Is this true? Well, yeah, yeah, they did. They did say that. And, no, 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 and, no, no. But I'm no, saying, no. is the claim true? No, no, certainly <laughs> not. Uh, no, that because. I'm writing my second book, which is which really discuss which really dis- discusses uh, you know these sort of pre colonial cultural practices that involves homosexuality. Obviously, it's different from our modern sense of homosexuality, um, but it does involve a lot of the practices do involve um, same sex intimacy. Um, some do involve like anal sex or some like thigh sex, um, but they were ritualized and also exceptionalized. But certainly, this uh, when when they say that there was no homosexuality in Africa before uh, you know Europeans went there, that's certainly not true. That's certainly not true. And also, uh, most African languages have words um, that describe either directly or um, by reference or sort of association about uh, homosexual behavior. Definitely, yeah. Well, obviously, more. You know, there were more words, verbal words, that describe uh, male same-sex practices than, than female ones, but they do exist. Yeah, right. And so now that we have uh, uh, um, some sense of the attitude of the sort of mainstream hip hop towards homosexuality and some of the reasons for why that is the case, um, could you tell us about homo hop? What is homo hop, and who are some artists who who represent well, uh, it? Uh, it was a, I think that that term is kind of short lived because um, even if you yeah even if you uh, but I put it there because that's how these rappers when they first came out when they first sort of uh, uh, you know group themselves and to perform in sort of public venues like in a bar in a gay bar whether they you know, gay bar or not but yeah in in um, black neighborhoods when they start performing especially in Oakland. Uh, they they came up with a term that's sort of subversive. It sends the message 
But now, uh, I think a lot of them just use the queer hip hop. You know, it's, it's less. Uh, it's more inclusive. Well, it's not. I wouldn't say it's more inclusive. It's just that it. Uh, it's you know it's sort of in line with what the popular culture, what what queer culture now is about. So they use that that term. Um, well, originally they just want to sort of show that they are people who are not straight and who can still do hip hop, if not better than you know some of these mainstream rappers. It's really about it's really about putting themselves out there and using a term, um, which also addresses their key difference. You know they they want to address. Uh, their sexuality because sometimes you, you always hear the argument say but why why do you have to say you're gay you can just you can just perform you can just like like Luther Vandross <laughs> you can just perform but but if you ever uh, uh, understand Luther Vandross struggle you understand that a lot of his music was about that he was suppressing his desires and, you know why he sang the way he sang um, so clearly uh these rappers, they, they, they don't want that. Right. And uh, are, could you give us uh, some names of uh, rappers who are openly gay? Like uh, uh, Timon T. West. Um, there's um, Jubak Lamka. Uh, uh, also Last Offense, but that's his stage name. You know, I don't know what his real name is. <laughs> uh, and there's also um, Kevin Chaos. I think he lives in Minnesota. Yeah, uh, it's just a few few of them. Um, the others who sort of did it for a period of time, like uh, Lester Green, but now he's mostly an actor. Uh, and it's interesting that they also had, you know, when they were rapping, it's really like their hobby, but they really put a lot of energy and a lot of time in it because um, they had all different kinds of jobs. You sometimes they work for charities. They I think Leslie was a bus driver uh, in New York, <laughs> and then they, they all had different kinds of jobs. But they they also put out music, and they um you know they, they go and host concerts or spoken poetry concerts as well. Right, yeah. and to what extent is masculinity specifically represented among the gay rappers that you look at? That's their main thing. That's one of their main, uh, uh, I guess. Like I said earlier, like you know, the lack of representation, you know how uh, gay men were viewed as feminine, in, sort of stereotypically, and and they want to say, you know, you can be gay and masculine too. There's nothing wrong with that, and also you can you can you can rap, and they rap about how you know they want to <laughs> uh, uh, chase after a guy, you know, sort of, uh, and in a very masculine way. It's, it sounds very strange, but. Um, you know, but to, to you know to, the, to our sort of what do you call it, like straight trained thinking, you know, <laughs> very strange. Because you know how because uh, they talk about how um, sometimes they they get asked by even friends and say you know so if you were in a gay relationship so who's the who's the woman who's the girl in the relationship? But they say there's no girl in the relationship. So you know, but people, but that's the thing. It's it's almost. Um, a way of also educating the, the audience who ever listen to the music. And yeah, masculinity is a big thing. And they still, they still, um, I think they still talk about that, you know, even though now they don't really rap, I think they stop, but they, they do their activism work. Um, they do still do spoken poetry a lot. Yeah. All right. Are, are there um, gay, black, historical figures that gay rappers take inspiration from and yeah. invoke uh, in their music? Uh, James Baldwin, for one, Audre Lorde, um, and particularly Bayard Boston. That's a very, very important figure. And it's also been buried for so long. And he was the mentor. Rest, the, 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 the um, uh, right-hand man to, to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Yes, and actually he's a mentor because he taught uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, you know, the techniques of civil disobedience. And he organized the minimum march in DC. And, you know, the networks basically he passed on to, to uh, MLK. So because he knew that he couldn't be the, the face of this movement, even though he cultivated movement way before uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. joined the movement. You know, he was 
he was there a long time, long time ago, and he was arrested 24 times <laughs> for his activist work. So you can imagine. Um, and he was openly gay. And that's the biggest thing is that, uh, like, you know, when I interviewed these rappers, they said uh, a lot of times they felt as though they want to know these people. They really do because they are the people they could look up to and feel that uh, there's a connection. There's there's a sort of heritage and almost lineage and sort of justify, not justify, well, kind of justify and just solidifies their own existence. They need that. I mean, it's almost like ancestral worship, but I mean, it's not, it's not that, but it's like how when you know where you come from, there are people like you before, it provides you with comfort, with peace, and also uh, it solidifies your, your sense of being, your, your, your identity self. And um, so not until, and that's a big thing because Ayahuasca was, was this almost uh, 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 ideal figure. You know, he was uh, the Dominican, talk, uh, what do you call like the, what, Americans, what do Americans use like the number one in your high school, the Benedictorian, something like that. Yeah, no, he, you know, and he was the, the um, uh, what do you call it? The captain of, of his school's fo- uh, football team. And he was well-versed in medieval poetry. <laughs> yeah. and a Renaissance man. Yeah, like, yeah, yes, he was called a Renaissance man and a dandy because he, he knew how to dress. He's, um, and he debated so many uh, figures, leaders from the separatist, the nationalist uh, camp like Malcolm X before he left the nation of Islam. Because he changed significantly after he left, but then he was soon assassinated afterwards. Um, and he debated uh, Stokely Carmichael, commentary, yeah, as well. Um, because, you know, he represented this integrationist uh, camp. As Dr. King, as was famously embodied by Dr. King. Yeah. In fact, I think the idea was sort of concretized for Dr. King through Boston. And he really thought, you know, we, we can't do this and we really have to unite every everyone in this country possible that, that support our our cause you know um so but this figure this so this this important figure was so buried in history and that's i think that's that's why they talk about him in, in the America so much um because he, he almost paved the way for this and there's a documentary if you can if you can ever uh, get your hands on it's called rather outsider it's really good it's about him. it's probably it's really it's really good yeah, and right. so right. this is, and um, I'm curious. Um, could you um, uh, uh, share with our listeners maybe just a, a few lines from uh, a one or two of the songs of the um, openly gay rappers that you explore in your book, just to to give listeners a little sense of um, of of the 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 flavor, the the texture of these songs. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to um, think, gosh, it's been, it's been years. <laughs> Three years. Um, um, I don't mean to put you on the spot, and I, I understand yeah, I, that uh, it's different. You know, this is not sort of poetry that was just uh, uh, written... Uh, that was, you know, um, uh, uh, written to be to be uh, read with, uh, you know, your eyes. These are are, are lyrics in a song, in a rap song, um, with music, and yeah. So of course it's uh, different. Yeah. So first in a song called F Words. Um, so uh, it goes. I think that's that's Lester Green. It says Leviticus faggots. Uh, got to spell it discreetly so we don't get banned on BET. But the truth of the matter is we didn't clarify. My people want to ban this, they must want to ban me. Not my activism, my service, and my ability. Hate to say, love the singer, love the sinner, you are sinning for judging me. Yeah, because I think that was very clever to say, because why, why, why I chose this, this particular uh, excerpt is because recently... Little Nas and X sort of mocked BET for not nominating him for an award. 
because he's gay. You know, and this is still, you see, this they wrote this song like in the early 2000s, and this is still happening. Right. So I think in addition, of course, to the issue of homosexuality in in rap music, I think that this excerpt also highlights uh, an important theme in your book, which is the way that the commercialization of the music puts all kinds of constraints on the type of music that could be produced for the mass audience. Yeah, because they... You know they need, uh, uh, like I said, you know, like the like uh, Rupert Drakris, they need uh, images that the mass audience are familiar with. You know, they, they they can instantly make a connection with in order to to sell to 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 garner uh, ratings and to um, to basically you know have more clicks on YouTube, have more views on YouTube. Where when you put something that's out of the ordinary thinking, out of the sort of inertial. Uh, 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 sort of way of thinking. People don't want to have time to process that. The reason the you know, psychologists said the reason people adopt uh, people adopt uh, stereotypes very quickly because it it helps them not to think. Right. They just use they use their preconceived notion to resolve whatever question they have in the moment they don't have to actually sit down and work it all out for themselves yeah that you know that's also Adorno's critique of popular music in general is that it's pre-digest you know it, it's yeah it's pre-digested it's like it, you, you like the lyrics you know the the the, 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 the format the structure of the song it, it, it's not like listening to a Beethoven sonata and you have to sit there for like 20 25 minutes to go through all three movements, <laughs> you know, trying to figure out what is this about. But popular music is very straightforward. It's consumer products. You know, they're produced to consume, quickly con- consume quickly. Um, right. And uh, speaking yeah. of consumption, how have the gay rappers you study been received by the black community? Uh, well, initially not too well, based on their, their uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, what they told me, based on what they told me, but I think recently they've been uh, more not necessarily through their music, but through their activism. They are more uh, known, you know, by a lot of black people, and also how they they're creating sort of like a safe space, not safe space, but a more accepting and more inclusive space. It's being created through their music and through their work. So it's not necessarily how. The music itself will definitely will immediately have an impact. Therefore, suddenly people, uh, uh, you know, change either inside or outside the community. It's more about how the lasting impact and how through their own being, their own living experiences, people could be influenced and slowly but surely. That's, I think, that's the the way I look at it. You know. Um, and also you have now mainstream artists, you know, I think I mentioned about how Frank Ocean came out and that was like a shock. Uh, and then now we have Little Nas X who basically did whatever uh, these rappers couldn't achieve before because they couldn't make it into mainstream, but they didn't want to either because that would change them because the mainstream would put so much constraints on their uh, artistic creation and their own you know, ability to, to tell the story. Uh, but I think still, the, you know, some of them, they, they said they had friends who were signed by some major labels, but like a sub-branch. Still, uh, I've also mentioned in the book, uh, those kind of fit the stereotypical image of, of a gay man, and or especially a, a black gay man. And also what they talk about in, in their music, it's about partying, it's about uh, boy conflicts, you know, about jealousy. These things that, like, pre-digested stuff, Versus political and um, uh, like historical, re- revealing historical stuff through, through through rap lyrics. So this is this is too much because for a lot of people they might like the sound, but they're thinking, who's this guy they're, they're talking about in the sound? They have to basically you know Google it. Right, who's Barry Rustin? Right, exactly. And uh, yeah, speaking of whom, when I went to uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, memorial in Atlanta. There was a huge sort of like a, a what do you call it, like a, a mural, not a mural, like a, a huge photo, like a giant photo uh, of when he 
gave the I Have Freedom speech in D.C. And there were people standing behind him, you know, I think, I think four men, or three, four, yeah. Bayer Washington was there, but he was the only one not named in the photo. Oh, wow. Wow. So yeah. there's still a kind of silencing or, 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 or not kind of drawing attention to him. Um, well, um, we, uh, that definitely uh, gives us a lot to think about. We have to leave it here for today. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.